0: audio studios
1: podcasts radio news
0: you're listening to the bloomberg balance of power podcast catch us live weekdays at noon eastern on apple carplay and android auto with the bloomberg business app listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on youtube
2: Welcome back to Balance of Power, live from Washington and New York today on Bloomberg TV and radio. And a red headline just crossing the Bloomberg terminal. The U.S. has told allies that Russia could deploy a nuclear weapon or a mock warhead into space As early as this year, so potentially in 2024, quite the news to see, Joe, especially in light of remarks we got from Russian President Vladimir Putin earlier today where he denied U.S. allegations that he's planning to deploy a nuclear weapon in space. He says he's always been categorically categorically against it and are now against the deployment of such things and that the U.S. is saying, though, that they could do just that as early as this Mm -hmm. year.
3: Yeah, the always credible Vladimir Putin weighing in. Kayleigh, uh if this is true, a nuclear warhead in orbit, which is apparently what we're talking about, uh, would violate the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. That is so 60s mm. that we called it the Outer Space Treaty, to which Russia is uh, a signatory here. So this all goes back to that statement. Remember, with Mike Turner, the chair of the Intelligence Committee yeah. last week, we had no idea what he was talking about. And you wonder if this would be public if he hadn't done that.
2: Well, that's an excellent question. Of course, the call from the chair of the Intelligence Committee was for the White House to declassify information related to an unspecified uh, threat. Of course, that forced the White House to get a little bit more specific about what the uh, threat really is. And we know that this technology theoretically is supposed to be an anti-satellite weapon, something that could be disruptive to all of the thousands of satellites that are up there orbiting in outer space, as you say, Joe, but really just it's fascinating to see this story unfold we weren't talking about this at all until about a week ago so for more on this story now let's bring in larry liebert he is an editor on our national security team and is joining us on the phone so larry realistically we could be dealing with a pretty short timeline here even though president of russia vladimir putin earlier today says he does not want to use a weapon like this
4: yeah, he says uh, Russia is categorically against it, but you know he also has been saber rattling some on his nuclear arsenal uh, during the Ukraine war. So uh, not everybody takes uh, his assurances as uh, as uh, as encouraging. Uh, our uh, reporters, Albert. Alberto Nardelli, Jennifer Jacobs, Katrina Manson uh, broke the story that the U.S. has told allies that Russia could deploy a nuclear weapon or a mock warhead, which would Mm. at least cause as much confusion into space during this year. uh, That's a timeline that uh, hasn't been reported before. And uh, the question is, and there's been much confusion about this, as everybody, including President Biden, has said, this isn't a nuclear weapon in space that would be shot uh, at people on Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could, though, if it's up there, it's up there as soon as this year, if it's for real and Russia chose to uh, use it, uh, could knock out satellite communications of all sorts. It, it would be a catastrophe because there are so many satellites we all depend on, like even mm-hmm. GPS
3: That's for sure. And Larry makes such a great point. We could be talking about a phony warhead for all we know. There's so much noise and misinformation coming out of Moscow that it's hard to really uh, be specific about what we're talking about here, Kaylee. But Larry, this will be a big deal when the G7 foreign ministers meet uh, in Italy in April. This will be top of the agenda, won't it?
4: Oh, I think so. I think it's going to hover over all the debates, uh, uh, including the debates over uh, Russia's intentions in, in the Ukraine war, uh, the, the questions about uh, the EU and U.S. support for NATO. All of these things tie together. And, and of course, uh, I would uh, say some conservative Republicans uh, in Congress have said perhaps that there's some scaremongering uh, going on here uh, to uh, have a, yet another dimension of reasons not to trust. Uh, and to act against Russia, but uh, it's certainly going to be uh, an issue in front of mind.
2: Well, Larry, you mentioned the the question around the future of U.S. support for Ukraine, whether or not Congress is actually going to pass billions of dollars in additional aid. Joe and I were speaking with former Defense Secretary Leon Panetta just last week, who essentially told us if Congress doesn't do that, President Biden needs to be looking at every possible option to continue aiding Ukraine. What real options... Are there if it's well, not passed a, by Congress? It's
4: a real good question, and uh, understandably, uh, our sources and those of other folks at the Pentagon and in the White House aren't eager to uh, spell out any last gasp or uh, desperate measures they could take. Uh you know, there's been talk of uh of US allies in Europe uh paying to uh, buy uh, and then replace weapons from the US arsenal uh which would really put the US in a into a bigger position. Uh they're They could continue to send certain weapons from U.S. stockpiles, but with no guarantee to replacing them, it really raises questions about the U.S. readiness uh, in uh, Asia, uh, for Taiwan, and elsewhere. Uh, And so they really are holding firm. And even if they develop some workarounds, the situation is urgent from the perspective of Ukraine, Mm -hmm. and there's no way to do billions of dollars uh, in uh, weapons without uh, Congress acting.
2: All right, Bloomberg's Larry Liebert, thank you so much for joining us on uh, the breaking news that crossed this hour.
3: Yeah, we add add another one here uh, and, and just the ridiculous number of stories. That we're following. Only four days out from South Carolina. Arguably the top political story today, Kaylee, but it's pretty hard to make those calls on a daily basis lately with so much noise. Mm-hmm. This is huge, though, for Nikki Haley. It's huge for Donald Trump. And we have new numbers uh, today. In fact, a couple of polls, and one specifically we're looking at from Suffolk University USA Today, who were just absolutely great in Iowa and New Hampshire. That's, of course, pollster David Paleologos, who we want to talk to here. Donald Trump leading Nikki Haley in her home state by almost two to one. It's 63 percent to 35 percent. Remarkable numbers for this stage of the campaign. Uh, And we do turn to David Paleologos. He is the director of the Suffolk University uh, Political Research Center. David, this is shut down. Your poll agrees with a lot of other polls that we've seen in the last couple of weeks uh, where Nikki Haley couldn't possibly win her home state. How bad is this going to look?
5: Well, we never say impossible, as you know. We say highly improbable, but it, it doesn't look good at all. I mean, this is just awful for her in her home state, two-term former governor of South Carolina, you know, worse than Iowa for her, worse than New Hampshire, and uh, if, these, if this margin holds up. I mean, there are some polls out there that have it twenty twenty two, Others have it in the 30s. I think the 28 number is pretty close. We'll see what happens on Election Day. Um, But again, and you know, South Carolina, like New Hampshire, anybody can vote. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. obviously, Nikki Haley is winning big among Democrats, uh, provided they didn't vote in the Democratic primary and winning comfortably among independents, but getting crushed among those who matter, which are registered uh, voters who see themselves as Republicans.
2: Well and then when you break down the demographics within that group of voters David it doesn't look like she's winning any of them. Former President Trump holds double digit advantages among men and women in every age group among both high school graduates and those with a college degree. So there is no demographic in within the Republican party that Haley is winning outright, right?
5: Well there's two that she's winning. I I would say one she's winning within the margin of error, but there are two. One is those people who are political ideology, moderate to liberal. She's winning about about 20 points, 59, 38, among that particular group. Uh, and also she's winning comfortably by more than that, among people who say that the, that the future of American democracy is the top issue. Mm-hmm. Now, future American democracy was not the number one issue. It was the number three issue. Um, so that doesn't get her very far as the number three issue. And Trump was winning by over 50 points among people who said immigration was the most important issue. That was the top issue. And secondly, he was winning by almost 35 points among the second most important issue, which is the economy. So um, very little wiggle room, if you will. She needs a massive influx of moderates, liberals, Democrats uh, to storm the polls on Saturday. But again, from what we can see in terms of who made it through the screen about being either a very likely voter on Saturday or, or somebody who had already voted, um, you know, Trump is poised for a big win.
3: David, Nikki Haley delivered a state of the race speech today in Greenville, and she opened it by announcing that she was not dropping out. And which really give you a sense of where we are. But she said more than that. Listen to Nikki Haley from earlier today.
6: Of course, many of the same politicians who now publicly embrace Trump privately dread him. They know what a disaster he's been and will continue to be for our party. They're just too afraid to say it out loud. Well, I'm not afraid to say the hard truths out loud.
3: Would it have made a difference, David Paleologos, if she said the hard truths out loud earlier? And is she? arguably doing damage to her brand now, knowing that she needs to convince Trump voters if she's going to get anywhere.
5: You know, I don't usually do a lot of commentary on races like this, but I I really do agree with you. Um, I I don't understand it. I think if she had gotten out and endorsed him today um, wholeheartedly, I think she could maybe make the case that she helped deliver a big win hmm. for Trump in her home state of South Carolina, and p- potentially setting herself up for a viable 2028 run or a 2032 run. But this just seems just so uh, ill prepared and hopeless to me. Um, if you're not showing up in those early primaries and caucuses in any way, it's like my class. You have to show up in my class and participate to get points, hmm. four points every class a student doesn't show up those first four classes they're already down 16 points to the other students who have and, to, and so then how do you how does that student justify getting an A in the class you know no matter how much extra credit they do no matter how well they ace these other metrics in my class and there's no way that 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 she's going to ace any states if she can't win her a home state I mean, Michigan comes three three days later, you know, you have got the primary and then the Michigan caucus because they, Mm -hmm. you know, they have that split up Uh, and you've got other races and super on super twos, even in Massachusetts. I thought she had a chance in Massachusetts to potentially pull an upset and we she's Mm -hmm. double digit. She's down in Massachusetts, (laughs) even with 60 percent independents and 10 percent Republicans.
2: Yeah, a tough picture, but we always appreciate you joining us. David Peliologos, Suffolk University Political Research Center director. Thank you for your time. And as he talks about attendance in his class, it also raises the turnout (laughs) question, Joe. How many people are going to show up and actually cast a vote in the primary when his poll shows that more voters are more enthusiastic to cast a ballot for Trump?
3: I think I would have failed David's class. I think I would have gotten out (laughs) to vote, though, Kaylee. This is Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg
3: 1130. Pick your poll. They tell the same story today. Emerson's out with numbers from the Hill. Suffolk is out with numbers. They ran with USA Today. We saw Winthrop. We've been through a couple of these in South Carolina. Haley. they all tell the same story.
2: Which is that Nikki Haley is going to lose, at least if the polls are correct, pretty badly to Donald Trump four days from now in the South Carolina primary. That said, Nikki Haley says the outcome doesn't matter. She's sticking around for the time being. And also, interestingly, Joe, as we hear her sharpening her criticism of Donald Trump, the frontrunner, as we have gotten further into this primary cycle, she also says that essentially right now she's just saying the quiet part loudly. Mm -hmm. Listen to some of what she said in her state of the race speech in South Carolina earlier today.
6: Of course, many of the same politicians who now publicly embrace Trump privately dread him they know what a disaster he's been and will continue to be for our party. They're just too afraid to say it out loud. Well I'm not afraid to say the hard truths out loud.
2: So joining us now for more on this here with me in our Washington DC studio is Bloomberg National Politics reporter Nancy Cook. So Nancy it's worth pointing out here that Nikki Haley hasn't essentially been saying this out loud for the entirety of this race. It's pretty new, in
1: fact, that she's saying some of these things about the former president.
2: Is it too little too late for her?
1: I I mean, kind of, yes. I mean, she really has decided to tank Tramon directly, really just in the last month or so. Before that, she was very cautious. And this fall, we saw that she was very cautious. Um, I think at this point, she is just trying to set up a contrast between her and the former president. Um, And I think that honestly, what we're seeing here is her playing a much longer game about, you know, if there is some sort of health scare or uh, the you know, former president's legal troubles catch up with him, she will be the alternative. Um, but we are really expecting him at this point to clinch the nomination, probably by the
3: third week of March. Hey, Nancy, it's good to see you. I wonder when, when we talk about the psychological impact, if it's just impossible to know what that will be following South Carolina this weekend, because as we've been discussing uh, for days and weeks now, the conventional wisdom is Nikki Haley just kind of hangs out for the spring and summer and waits to see if something goes wrong with the Trump campaign. But what about 2028? What about her future career? If it doesn't work out in this campaign, does a loss that bad, a 30 point loss in your home state, uh, keep you from doing other things in the future based on the message that you're sending, the embarrassment that comes with it?
1: Uh, Not at all. I think that that will be a big part of what she'll do. I think that she will, uh, you know, is really positioning herself to run in 2028. She will have been the last Republican standing against Donald Trump. And you have to remember that if Trump loses to Biden in the general election, which is months away, Nikki Haley can say, I told you so. Um, You know, she's also in her early 50s. She's so much younger than Trump and Biden. And I think that she has like a long political life left in her. So I think part of this is also positioning for 2028. I think government. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida is doing the same thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He just announced he's going to be in South Carolina tomorrow. Um, So I think that, you know, (laughs) everybody who dropped out is really trying to say, hey, hold on, I'll be there in four years.
2: Well, of course, for Nikki Haley as well, we have to consider that she does have the resources to keep this up for a while as she's continued to pull in uh, money from donors. When she was speaking in South Carolina earlier, I was watching some of her remarks. It was notable she actually got choked up when talking about her husband, Michael, who is currently deployed uh, to Africa. Her second deployment, she says she was speaking about how hard it is on them as a military family. When Donald Trump has, has effectively questioned where her husband is at times, she says is disrespectful um, of, of military members and military families, given South Carolina is a pretty uh, military-heavy state, are we expecting that to have an impact come primary day?
1: I think it could have an impact. I mean, just with people who don't already like Trump. I think Trump is going to hold on to that 30% Mm -hmm. base of the Republican Party who really likes him no matter what. But I think that there is an opportunity for Nikki Haley to pick off voters who are college-educated you know, in some of these wealthier areas of South Carolina. And so that's what I will be looking for, not just like What is the margin between those two with the primary, but also what types of voters does she end up appealing to in South Carolina?
3: Hey, Nancy, we're going to talk later on this hour with our political panel about Joe Biden's fundraising prowess. He's on his way to uh, a week on the West Coast uh, raising money in California. But ahead of the deadline, he's reporting forty two million dollars for the campaign and the DNC. He ends January with one hundred and thirty million dollars in the bank for his reelection effort. Uh, Joe Biden is winning the fundraising wars here, is he not?
1: He is. And I talked to a bunch of donors after that special counsel report uh, that raised questions about his age, and a bunch of Democratic donors said, look, you know, we think that he has been a good president, and as long as Trump is on the ticket, we will keep funding Biden. It's not so much like a, a gift to Biden or a full vote of confidence in himself as it is a donation to just an anti-Trump coalition. Mm-hmm. These Democratic donors do not want Trump to be president again, and they were they are willing to keep uh, you know, funding Biden's bid because they're just freaked out by that. And and we've seen he's had a lot of success with fundraising in New York, mm-hmm. on the West Coast, in Florida. You know, fundraising has not been a problem problem for the Biden campaign.
3: Well, that's for sure. And we're gonna hear about the others uh, coming up in short order, whether it's the Trump uh, campaign or the parties. Nancy Cook, great to see you. Great reporting as always. Bloomberg senior national political correspondent. Find Nancy on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. Kaylee, uh, this of course is a huge story going into South Carolina. Um, but immediately after that, we're gonna turn our focus to Super Tuesday. And here in Washington, there's still a conversation about geopolitics, about funding our allies abroad that has yet to be resolved. In fact, it's very much up in the air after lawmakers went home for two weeks without crafting a budget, without passing aid for Ukraine, Israel or Taiwan.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And Joe, that is something that the current incumbent President Joe Biden is keenly aware of. He's putting a a lot of pressure on Congress in recent days, especially in light of the developments of recent days, to pass uh, Ukraine aid that he essentially says is badly needed. Mm -hmm. Just take a listen to the president over the weekend.
7: We're making a big mistake not responding. Look, the way they're walking away from the threat of Russia, the way they're walking away from NATO, the way they're walking away from beating our
4: operation, is just shocking. I've been for a while. I've never seen anything like
3: this. The president, as he was leaving the White House, as Kaylee mentioned over the weekend, we've heard this line from him a couple of times calling it bizarre that they would leave town. Remember his news conference at the end of last week. We had the voice now of Jim Gilmore, the former governor of Virginia, is with us, former Uh, ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe and former chair of the RNC. Governor, it's great to see you. Welcome back to Bloomberg. What's going to happen when lawmakers come back to town and have already spent a couple of weeks at home hearing from voters on this, watching headlines from Ukraine as areas fall to the Russians? Will there be a different feel in the air?
7: Well, I don't know, but I, I know there should be. I think it's absolutely urgent that the Ukraine financing pass, uh, all the false narratives that have been out there about how we have to look after our border and we can't look after the Ukrainian border. These are all false messages. Some of them are being being created by the Russians in order to try to work on the minds of the American people and to destroy our resolve. It's absolutely essential that this uh, Ukrainian uh, support pass. And I might say to you, uh, Joe, that this is a failure of national leadership everywhere. Hmm. We're not seeing the national leadership anywhere to c- completely explain to the American people the truth and how absolutely vital this war in Ukraine is to the safety of the United States of America. We're not seeing it out of the Congress. We're not seeing it out of the Senate. We're not seeing it out of the presidency. This has to happen. It has to happen and there has to be an explanation as to why, and you have to expose some of these false uh, rumors and myths that are being put out there to try to destroy American resolve and
5: leadership.
2: Well, you say that Russia may be behind some of these rumors and myths, but are they not being propagated by certain Republicans, including the Republican frontrunner for the presidency, Donald Trump, who has the ear of Speaker Mike Johnson?
7: Well, I, I can say this, uh, I, I, when I was the ambassador in Vienna on behalf of the United States in the Trump administration, Nobody in the Trump administration ever told me to let up on the Russians. Hmm. And I don't foresee that when President Trump is reelected again, that he's gonna back away from NATO or back away from anybody else. I think American leadership was stronger then than it is now. But uh, Kaylee, I wanna repeat my message. We're seeing a failure of leadership everywhere by everybody. The American people are entitled to know the truth. And the truth is that this is vitally important to America's safety and national security and for the future.
3: Well, let's get to what else should be done here than Governor. Joe Biden has delivered a couple of speeches, one of them in prime time from the Oval Office, to speak to the dangers around the world, the risks that we face, and the need to help to fund our allies, whether it be in Ukraine, Israel, or Taiwan. Uh, we understand that there's a very different conversation that's been having in the House of Representatives. We even heard Donald Trump say uh, a couple of weekends ago that he would let Russia, in his words, do whatever the hell it wants uh, to our allies who don't meet spending goals in NATO. This does seem to be two different conversations, no?
7: Uh, yeah, I look, I think that what the pre- President uh, Trump is doing is putting pressure on the NATO allies to step up to the plate. Mm-hmm. Uh, my report to you is the truth, though, which is they are stepping up to the plate, and largely because of President Trump's pressure when he was president and I think these statements that he's making now are intended to do that. But the, the, the key point is that uh, we, American leadership is necessary and we do uh, lead and people look to us for leadership and it has to happen. Uh, but uh, right now, I think we're not seeing the proper messaging out of Washington by anybody.
2: Well, and and that messaging, or lack thereof, certainly is noticed, received by our allies. Of course, we saw the Munich Security Conference happening in in recent days where a lot of uh, American allies expressed concern about the direction of the conversation here domestically, what it could mean for the future of of alliances, the future of U.S. participation and support for uh, allies in Europe. What should they be thinking of the United States at this moment? Are their concerns not uh, founded in real threat?
7: Uh, listen, the, the the real threat is certainly there. This is a Russian fascist dictatorship that is committing aggression. I, I have to talk about Navalny for a second. This is a murder sure. of Putin's principal leader, and whether he was frozen to death in the Arctic gradually and starved to death or uh, put, submitted to illness or whether he was directly accelerated in a murder through some type of activity up there in that remote place. That's an important message to the people of Russia, to the people of Europe, and it ought to be an important message to the people of the United States, that this is what's in our future if we don't step up and do something right now. Uh, But uh, you're right about this, that the messaging, I think, needs to be strong. Our European allies, I worked with them every day while I was in Vienna on behalf of the United States. Their best interest for their citizens all across Europe is to follow American leadership. If American leadership falters, they will do the best they can for their citizens just like we do for our citizens and that means that they they there's risk up the road that they'll compromise we can't allow that to happen russia cannot succeed in this attempted conquest and subject and subjugation of ukraine They're trying to reassemble the russian empire if he does that he threatens europe and eventually it, well, that that threatens the united states of america
3: Would it have helped, Governor, if Donald Trump, the former president, in his statement about the death of Alexei Navalny had, in fact, condemned Vladimir Putin It didn't even mention his name?
7: Well, I'm certainly doing it. I mean, I think that right now that all of our national leadership needs to be as vigorous and strong on this as possible and explode some of these myths. Listen, uh, we have a right to know that the money that taxpayers send to Ukraine is being properly spent. And that means that that information has to be shared. The the, the Zelensky administration has to be at pains to get that information to the American taxpayer if he wants taxpayer money. It means that the national leadership from the White House has got to be explicit about addressing these issues. You have to explain that the American border is important, but it's really a different issue from Russian aggression in Europe. America's a great power. We can do all of these things appropriately, but it requires leadership both internationally and here in the United States.
2: All right, Ambassador Gilmore, thank you so much for joining us. Always great to get your insight as the former United States ambassador to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe and of course also former governor of Virginia and former RNC chair. Quite a moment we are in as he we hear the ambassador talking of grave geopolitical risk and yet Congress It's unclear whether or not they want to do anything about it. We'll have more coming up for you next on Balance of Power on Bloomberg TV and radio.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube.
3: Welcome to the Tuesday Feels Like Monday edition of Balance of Power. I'm Joe Matthew at World Headquarters in New York. Kaylee Lines at Bloomberg's Washington Bureau. Political news is funny, Kaylee. It's not always what the headline says. We spent the whole weekend talking about Donald Trump's $400 gold sneakers. And he knows yeah. how to plant a story, right? I don't know if you've got your pre-order in. It was, it was Joe Biden's fundraising, though, that was the real news.
2: Yeah, because he's done a lot of it. In the month of January, Joe, $42 million has been pulled in for his re-election campaign and the Democratic Party more broadly. So he ended yep. January with $130 million in the war chest. That's pretty significant. Actually, a record amount for a Democratic candidate at this point in the calendar.
3: That's uh, for sure. It's one of the reasons why, or the primary reason why he's in California this week as well, because Joe Biden is in fundraising yep. mode. And Kaylee, we spent all last week talking about how much money Donald Trump is spending on attorneys. He, for what it's worth, has not put up his numbers yet. When we get to yep. the deadline, we'll see them. But he's likely to run out of cash because of all the court cases by July as Joe Biden continues to put checks in the bank. It's a pretty interesting phenomenon.
2: Indeed, as we're thinking that Trump is going to have to pay out more than $400 million in damages to E. Jean Carroll and then the state of New York for those two civil trials. And then you have to pay all your attorneys and he spent more than $50 million in campaign funds doing that in 2023. So definitely a difficult financial picture for the former president. For the incumbent president, though, maybe a better one. The question is, can you put all that money to use to actually benefit Mm -hmm. in a race where a lot of polls show you behind Donald Trump at this point? So on that note, let's bring in Bloom politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano alongside Lisa Camuso-Miller, former RNC communications uh, director and of course host of the Friday Reporter podcast. So Jeannie, first to you, what's all the money worth if it's not deployed appropriately? Is the Biden campaign doing a good enough job right now of spending it?
6: Yeah, you know, they have time. They're going to be spending it. What they're doing right now is this fundraising machine, essentially, it has been a juggernaut, as, as you said. The most we've seen out of a Democratic candidate at this point, this is the biggest haul since April of last year. And there's one number in particular that stands out. 97% of these donations were under $200 that is very very impressive for the campaign these are not just all big time big funders these are small money donations and also to add to that the fact that they raised in the three days after iowa a million dollars per day that speaks to where this money is coming from And, and nancy cook said it earlier a lot of this is coming not necessarily because people are so excited about joe biden although They may get there as we move forward. But because of Donald Trump looking like he is going to be the nominee of the Republican Party and a real intent on the part of people funding the Democrats to stop that. Mm. And so they are out there doing the hard work now of raising the money. And then to your point, they're going to have to spend it wisely.
3: Well, we promise context here at Bloomberg, and it's worth throwing some on this particular story here Uh, just to reset what Kaylee mentioned. Forty two million dollars. In January for the Biden campaign and the DNC, that means one hundred and thirty million in the bank. Now that actually still trails what Donald Trump and the RNC had in the bank in 2020. Not so much this time. The RNC started the year with over eight million dollars cash on hand. And Donald Trump hasn't put up his his numbers yet here. He was he was coming in with thirty three million dollars. They will have their totals up uh, for January Context, Lisa, formerly of the RNC, you understand how this works. What are the conversations like inside the halls and the offices at the Republican National Committee knowing how much money is going to Donald Trump's lawyers?
8: Well, you know, Joe, it's really hard to compare. It's like comparing apples to oranges because when I was at the RNC, there was a bit of a different structure in the way that this um, the financing was happening, right? And there are so many other third-party groups that are involved in all of this that it's hard to really sort of compare the two. But what I will say is that the party itself is on the verge of transition. There's no question about it. Anytime a nominee is getting ready to come into uh, their own and be at least the in, the incumbent or the one that is going to be the, the, the candidate that will run for the platform, it's... Um, It's time for a change. And I suspect that that is what's going to happen at the RNC. And sometimes breathing new life into the RNC and into the political parties does reignite sort of the interest and the the fundraising piece of that. The one segment that's sort of different that we really can't even sort of factor in because it's also brand new is all of these extra expenses, the legal expenses, to your point. So I think what we're going to have to watch is sort of how that all unfolds. The one thing I'll say, though, is that what's different about these rulings. And what's different about Donald Trump is that he is someone that knows how to leverage one item over another, right? He is someone who has very mm-hmm. often figured out how the system works and he has used it to his advantage to raise more money on the business side. So I suspect he's looking for all of those angles on political side as well. Mm-hmm. The one thing I'll say for certain is that this is gonna be the most expensive presidential race we will see in our history, in our lifetime. They're gonna set records this year. And so that's sort of indicative yeah. of what we're seeing on the Democrat side, the most money in a war chest for uh, an incumbent president uh, on the Democrat side. And I suspect that the money is going to continue to, to pour in for Donald Trump as well. And obviously he's using resources and different means like selling $400 shoes to make that happen. <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah, that, that's absolutely true. But Lisa, to your point about how there are all of these other uh, factors like his legal fees at play now, I wonder if ultimately it, it tur- everything turns out fine for the financing of Donald Trump and his presidential bid. What suffers perhaps is every Republican down the ballot who isn't going to be able to tap into RNC resources at a time when the Democratic Party may have more resources to go around. Is that really where we're going to see the impact here? Not at the presidential level, Lisa, but for everybody else? Who's trying to get a piece of the pie?
8: Haley, it's it's hard to know because there are other fundraising um, operations within the political Mm -hmm. structure, right? There's the National Republican Congressional Committee. There's the Senate Committee. There are lots of other political arms that are also doing some tremendous fundraising. And that fundraising is sort of operated not necessarily from the top of the ticket, but from the top of the U.S. Senate. So through Mitch McConnell and his uh, political operation, as well as Mike Johnson, who is also raking in millions and millions of dollars. There's been a lot of support for him over the course. the last few weeks since he started just six weeks ago so some of that i think as much as there may be impact down ballot i think more often than what that what we will end up seeing is that people will be making choices about where they're sending their money, whether it's to the RNC or if it's to the other political uh, operations within the structure of the political parties.
3: Hmm. Jeannie, we need to talk about Michigan. This is not uh, being widely reported because Joe Biden's gonna win the primary. It's a week from today, by the way, we're obsessing over South Carolina. Michigan's a week from today. And there's a movement to get Democrats to vote uncommitted next week. This is a movement that has the backing of Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. Uh, There's a separate abandoned Biden campaign launched uh, by uh, Muslim voters who formerly backed Joe Biden. Without the Arab American Muslim American vote, he would have lost Michigan in 2020, Jeannie. And because of what's happening right now in Gaza, he could lose them this time around. What happens in Michigan next week?
6: Yeah, it's got to be a big concern to the campaign. I mean, the idea that you have a Democrat in Rashida Tlaib urging Democrats in her home state to vote uncommitted against an incumbent president, you know, that is very unusual. But I think it speaks to your point about what a big issue this war with Hamas and Israel is domestically. I mean, normally we would say foreign policy issues don't play big in presidential campaigns, Um, they usually don't this is something different particularly on the democratic side we're going to have to wait and see what happens in in michigan there is a large population of jewish americans as well in michigan but the impact is real because of course joe biden won that very narrowly last time around and he needs to get out the vote i would also watch out for people particularly in the african-american community Who have been empathetic to what's happening in gaza and who are looking in particular at people like rfk junior who is out there talking about issues they care about like the environment and so you couple those together and this is a big challenge for joe biden and you know he'll win michigan but the question is if we see a drop in people turning out that is a warning sign for democrats
3: Great panel, great conversation with Jeannie Shanzano and Lisa Cabuso Miller. Uh, Great to have you both of you, uh, both of you with us, I should say. Kaylee, forgive me for interrupting here. When we look back to 2020, just for the the context on Bloomberg here, Joe Biden won by 155,000 votes, including the vast majority of the state's 200,000 Muslim voters. That's the number, Mm 200,000.
2: Yeah, it's a very small number when you think about the electorate as a whole, Joe, and it just goes to show you how close these swing states are and how issues like this really could matter. And interesting to have this conversation on a day in which we've just seen the United States vetoing a U.N. Security Council resolution to call right. for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Yes, it's because the U.S. is trying to continue to pursue a diplomatic answer exchange of hostages held by a Hamas for a ceasefire of some period of time, which obviously hasn't ha- happened yet. But optima- optically, at least for the president, could be pretty difficult, the news today.
3: Kaylee Lines, my partner in Washington. I'm Joe Matthew, at least for this week at World Headquarters in New York. You're
0: listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg
3: 1130. It's not Monday. It just feels like one. Welcome to Tuesday and new numbers with four days to go now to the South Carolina primary It seemed so far away, so much seemed possible when we were in Iowa and New Hampshire, not so much now. As I read on the terminal, Nikki Haley vowing to stay in the Republican presidential race against Donald Trump, regardless of the outcome of Saturday's contest. And that's a good thing, because she's looking at the same numbers we are. Not good today. Suffolk University, USA Today, shows those among those at least very likely to vote in The Republican primary in South Carolina, Donald Trump leads Nikki Haley by close to two to one, 63 percent to 35 percent. Emerson is also out with a poll today uh, showing uh, not quite as wide a gap, but. A slam dunk for Donald Trump. And that's where we start our conversation with Gregory Cordy. He's with us uh, from Bloomberg's Washington Bureau. Of course, uh, Bloomberg politics reporter Gregory, uh, we've seen remarkable consistency uh, in these numbers, whether it was Winthrop or Suffolk or Emerson coming out of South Carolina. Nikki Haley is going to lose badly this weekend is what they're telling us, right?
9: Yeah, if you want to look at the bright side for her, uh, she is gaining ground on Trump. Back uh, when, uh, just after the New Hampshire primary, she was trailing by. 30 points on average. Now, if you average out those polls that you talked about just now, it, she's uh, she's uh, trailing by 25 points. But the problem is, the primaries in four days. Uh, and at this rate, uh, she will overtake Trump sometime far in the future when it won't matter anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, this is uh, these are discouraging poll numbers for her. But she's pledging to soldier on, at least through Super Tuesday, when frankly, the polls and the party rules are even more foreboding for her because then you get into winner-take-all states where all Trump needs to do is win a, a bare majority and gets all the delegates, and that can, those can stack up pretty quickly. Yeah. And at this rate, he could clinch the, the nomination by early to middle of next month. Well,
3: that's certainly what the Trump camp thinks, Gregory, as Nikki Haley delivers what is being referred to a, as a state-of-the-race speech today in Greenville. She's at it right now. Donald Trump's senior advisor on the campaign, uh, Chris LaCivita, says this is done in the next four weeks, not who's ahead, who's trailing, like done, presumptive, we have the delegates. This is the math here. Even if Haley reprises her New Hampshire performance in every state voting over the next four weeks, the campaign has crunched numbers to show that Donald Trump would still cross 1215, the 1,215 delegates required, Uh, On March 19th, Gregory, that's the day Florida, Illinois, Ohio have winner-take-all primaries. Could Nikki Haley, if this really is a campaign in waiting for something to go wrong, continue through all of this? Just hang in there?
9: Yeah, she really is waiting for some big game-changing moment, but it's hard to see where that will come from. Of course, former President Trump is facing four different criminal indictments, but the trials for those won't start until... Uh, late next month at the earliest. Um, and even those don't seem to have much of a sway on Republican voters who tend to rally around him every time he faces uh, these these legal challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's just such a big chasm here with where the Republican base is now behind Trump and where, you know, those sort of moderate, you know, those more moderate to liberal Republicans, You we might call them traditional Republicans, Main Street Republicans, Country Club Republicans, whatever you want to call them, uh, they still exist in the Republican Party. They still would love to find a Republican candidate that they like, certainly more than Donald Trump and certainly more than than Joe Biden. Uh, but there's just not enough of them uh, to to carve out space for Nikki Haley at this
3: point, it seems we, like. We do have an ear, Gregory, on her speech right now. She did uh, play around a little bit when she came out there, but not dropping out, as some suggested. She did acknowledge that right off the top. If you have to tell people you're not dropping out in a campaign speech, where does that say uh, what does that say about your campaign, Gregory?
9: No, the problem is when you're behind at this stage of the race, you have to tell people every day you're not dropping out because the one day that you tell people <laughs> you don't tell people that, people assume you're going to drop out, and then that's where the the donor money dries up, and that's where uh, re- things really start to go south. So, mm-hmm. yeah, she has to she has to to come out and say that she's. She's in this for at least the medium term, and that includes South Carolina obviously on Saturday, but then also Super Tuesday early next month. And in between, we have Michigan, where her campaign just put in uh, $71,000 in uh, the Detroit market and television advertising. That's not a whole lot, but it is laying a marker to say, look, clearly I'm looking beyond uh, South Carolina. Um, and so she has to do those kinds of things to, to at least project that this is not uh, a campaign that's going to drop out. Because remember, the, the yardstick that she set for herself uh, after New Hampshire, she said, you know, I, I came in a third in Iowa, I came in second in New Hampshire, and all I need to do is improve on my performance from state to state mm-hmm. – She's now moving those goalposts to say that she's in it no matter what after South Carolina. That's not what she said right after to New Hampshire. She, she, she needed to improve on New Hampshire to stay in it. She's not necessarily saying that in her speech in Greenville as, as we're watching today. Yeah, that's for sure. You wonder what a Tim Scott endorsement might have meant at
3: this stage if she... Uh, was able to, to wrap that up. Of course, Donald Trump got it in New Hampshire. Gregory, it's good to see you, and we thank you. He'll be, of course, a part of our coverage here at the South Carolina primary. It's only four days away. It's not looking good for Nikki Haley, but as we keep hearing, that just may not matter when it comes to her plans in staying in the race. Enter Goldman Sachs. It's the economy, stupid. You want to advance to the general election and get a sense of what voters will be basing their decisions on. Check this report. February 5th, reading about this today, uh, a fascinating read on Bloomberg. Wouldn't know about it if it weren't on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. This is new research that explores where the economy will be when we vote and who that might break for. And it finds that President Biden's economy will be right around the dividing line that separates winning reelection campaigns from losing ones. And they've identified about a dozen areas here in which they can plant their flag and essentially make a prediction. This is fascinating stuff. And we knew there was one man to talk to uh, about it. Danny Blanchflower is with us, the economist, of course, at Dartmouth College, recipient of the Commander of the Order of the British Empire in (laughs) 2009 He put the fishing pole down to talk to us for a couple of moments today on Balance (laughs) of Power. Mr. Blanche Flower, it's great to see you. (laughs) Hi there. Could anyone in their right mind, could anyone in their right mind predict where the economy is gonna be in November?
10: Well, honestly, it's really, really difficult. Um, it, It certainly looks like a soft landing. It certainly looks like the economy is in pretty good shape now, much better shape than I expected with all the rate hikes. But in nine months time, who knows? But I don't think there's a prospect of very rapid deterioration between now and November Unless something catastrophic happens, which I don't foresee. But we're gonna see unemployment rates below 4% or something like that. So if you look at all the forecasting models, the whole sets of models done by Ray Fair and others, the state of the economy is an important indicator of what's coming. People's living standards are important. And people's perceptions are important. But in a sense, the contradiction is people's perceptions of how the economy is doing are not that great. But they keep on spending and the economy is very resilient. And so there's the puzzle.
3: Well, you just uh, outlined that perfectly because it's confounding the administration and the Biden campaign. We look at the strength behind this jobs market. It's enough to confound the stock market, certainly, uh, as well. When you look at consumer spending, you mentioned it. And that's one of the areas that Goldman looked at here and what could change the picture before November, as they point out savings from stimulus and lockdown running out. Where's the consumer six or nine months down the road?
10: Well, uh, I mean, in in some sense, the last two years has been about uh, expecting the consumer to back off, Mm -hmm. especially in the light of what they say in terms of consumer confidence measures. Consumer confidence measures over the last 12 months or so have been absolutely predicting recession. They tell you stories about the recession that we saw in 2008. They've been consistent with that, but the consumer has still kept going. So unless there's something really that changes everything, My assumption has to be now, you know, that I was wrong, that the data, I mean, all the things predicted something coming were wrong. But there are one or two little negatives on the horizon. Let me give you one. Mm -hmm. Uh, A couple of good predictions uh, about whether we're in recession, a couple of good indicators is whether we have two successive months of negative growth in employment. Now, either on what's called the establishment account, which is non-farm payrolls, or on the household account which is where you generate the unemployment rate. And we've seen very big declines over the last two months. Um, 680,000 the, the month before and 31,000. That, that's a pretty darn good indicator to say you've gone into recession, but none of the other things are, are sitting with it. So obviously, you know, there are one or two red flashing lights. But I think Goldman's right that, that it's hard to see the economy being really bad, although the perception, I think, is pe- people see very well that rep- potential Republican voters see the economy as being much worse than the Democrat voters do. And obviously the question is, what are the swing voters in the middle see and how does it change by state? Mm-hmm. But I think this is a tough one to call. But we're now—I ne- I mean, we're now we're now coming up to mark. We're not that far away. Economies are less some terrible shock. It's than like it did in 08 and in 2020. And again, I guess in 22 with the with the war and the inflation shock, but it's hard to see much changing where we are. So, so I think pretty much keep on keeping on is likely where we are.
3: Interesting. Uh, you look at another item that's inflation, of course, a huge one for yeah. Joe Biden. Uh, in fact, it was referred to in the report as Biden's weakest link, Danny Blanchflower. What could change in Goldman Sachs's view is the war in the Middle East that has already sent freight yeah, costs course. surging. That's another wild card.
10: Well, of course. I mean, the ability to get goods through the, the, the Gulf, you, through Suez, through the, through the canals and try and you know, continue to, to, to basically deliver products. That's mm-hmm. important. I mean, we know what happened when supply chains eat, closed up during COVID. So that's an obvious potential. I mean, obviously, what happens in Ukraine? Does that war, um, does it increase? Does it slow? What does it do? So those are clearly potential shocks. But the inflation rate has come down and come down sharply um, of the order of 3%. I think the best predictions probably without, you know, knowing exactly what's going to happen in the Middle East is that those numbers will continue to drop. And that's what most people are forecasting. And even Mm if if there's tough things going on, even if the unemployment rate rises, the predictions are something like 4%. And we haven't talked about output. It doesn't appear that a recession, it does appear that your output may be slowing. But the likelihood is you're still going to see positive output um, published for the, for the second and third quarters, which is what we'll see go, go into the recession. So in lots of senses, I mean, the truth is that whether people perceive it or not, the Fed has actually generated a soft landing. The data are pretty darn good. Mm. And a president is entitled to say, I've generated masses of jobs. The unemployment mm-hmm. rate didn't rise. Wage growth has held up and the economy has continued to grow against all the pundits and all the predictions. So in some sense that's that's their fingers are crossed in hoping yeah. that um, some some terrible shock doesn't come and people come around to understanding how good the economy is.
3: Huh, boy, okay, we'll see about that and time yep. could be the difference maker. Danny Blancheflower in our remaining cool. moment here. I wonder where you are though on the you know the the rate hike camp right now, we had Larry Summers say on Bloomberg last week that a hike is possible. Everyone's obviously betting on cuts. This thing does not move in a straight line. Could you see inflation reversing between now and November?
10: No, I don't. Th- I mean, the thing in some sense that the, the, I, I think these such comments by Larry Summers and others are quite interesting. Well, I was an interest rate setter. The job of an interest rate setter is to think about what the inflation rate is going to be 15 months to two years ahead because monetary policy takes quite a time to have an effect. So even if inflation now perhaps bumps around, that doesn't suggest that you should raise rates. Everything suggests that inflation in the period ahead yeah. is going to decline. I think it shows Larry Summers doesn't seem to understand how you do monetary policy. He's never been a monetary policymaker. And the answer is the best thing to think about is rate cuts are on the agenda. The question is how soon will it be March? Will it be May? And they will continue to come. But you're mm. not. You know, monetary policymakers really uh, shouldn't be responding to one month at a time data. They <laughs> should be thinking, what's my view about 18 months ahead? And is the latest data going to change my view about that? Um, so so I, I don't really, unless something fundamental yes, changes. Right. Anybody who thinks there's a rate hike coming is in Gargal
3: Last time he was on the program, he made clear to me and our listeners and viewers that he would fail me. I would fail his economics class, and I'm pretty sure today didn't change that. Danny Blanchflower, it's great to see you. Thank you for the insights. As always, professor of economics, Dartmouth College. He can get back to the fishing now. I'm Joe Matthew at Bloomberg World Headquarters in New York. I'm glad you're with us. Only on Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Balance of Power podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at noontime Eastern at Bloomberg.com.